0: As we've been learning about these Reformation cries, I mentioned earlier when we were studying the doctrine of sola fide that two of the Reformation cries were especially damaging to the Roman Catholic Church. One was sola fide because by faith alone a person is saved, and if that is true, then what that means is is the Roman Catholic Church does not save people, the Roman Catholic Church cannot take away somebody's salvation Um, if somebody just needs to hear the gospel and believe by faith and they are saved apart from any particular denomination or apart from any particular local church the second great terror of the roman catholic church was doctrine of sola scriptura because the roman catholic church believes in this entire body of truth called the magisterium the magisterium is a body of truth which comes from the church the writings of the early church fathers the conclusions of church councils edicts decrees papal bulls, papal utterances papal announcements all of these things are contained in this what is called the magisterium and what is interesting and what a lot of protestants don't understand is is that roman catholics believe that information is equal in authority and sometimes above the authority of scripture imagine in your mind going into a library a large library and the the shelves are just loaded with books there are books and pamphlets and folders full of all kinds of decrees and Writings of church fathers and councils. Now imagine going into that same library and it's completely empty except for one book. The Bible. That is the difference between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Protestantism believes there is One divine source of objective information, it comes from the Word of God. That the Word of God is how we get information to be saved. The Word of God alone is the source of all matter of doctrine, of faith, and practice. Now, you can imagine why the doctrine of Sola Scriptura was a terror to the Roman Catholic Church. If you start reading the Bible, you instantly begin to realize that many of the rituals, practices, and beliefs of Roman Catholicism aren't in the Bible. For instance, the doctrines concerning the sinlessness of Mary, her perpetual virginity, her suffering for our sins, her bodily ascension, are found nowhere in the Bible. Purgatory. Indulgences, Penance, the treasury of merit, the worship and veneration of saints and icons and relics are not in there. Praying the rosary, you know, saying Hail Marys or Our Fathers are not in the Bible. Confessing to priests and the celibacy of the priesthood and almost all the details of the Roman Catholic Mass are not found in the Bible. They're all man-made doctrines. The kind of over the years like barnacles began to cling to the whole of the Roman Catholic Church until they had so many barnacles clinging to that that it basically sunk into false religion. And while each of the solas challenged certain doctrines and practices of Roman Catholicism, the doctrine of sola scriptura laid waste to the entire system. And the Roman Catholic Church knew this that is why they didn't want people reading their Bible that is why they burnt people at the stake for having Bible studies for translating the Bible for preaching the Bible for teaching the Bible thus when young Martin Luther professor of theology at Wittenberg began to teach verse by verse through the Bible people were being saved people were being transformed the whole city was being transformed Keep in mind that Luther was a very good Roman Catholic at the beginning. Luther once said that he had not even seen a Bible until he was 20 years old. During Luther's time, Roman Catholic system was a cesspool of immorality and corruption. Wicked priests were not teaching people the truth. They would be self-condemned if they did. The mass was in Latin. Most people didn't speak Latin. So even though there are a few verses and a little bit of truth contained in the mass, when it's said in a language you don't understand, it it benefits you for nothing. Some of you probably grew up in a Roman Catholic church and can remember back to when all the masses were said in Latin and you came and you just kind of watched and depending on what the priest was doing, you would stand up and sit down and genuflect or whatever, but you had no idea what was being said. You were not edified in any way. This is what the church wanted. Why? Because that's how you control people. If you can keep them in ignorance, you can control people. Now at that time, the printing press was a relatively new invention. It was invented uh, in the 1400s, and it was uh, this new invention, kind of like the Internet is today, um, probably the cutting-edge technology for spreading the word back then. It was the printing press. And Martin Luther, at the beginning, was thinking, you know, I should make use of the printing press to copy my sermons and write books and spread the truth throughout Germany. And so he wrote feverishly and literally created a blizzard of sermons, books, and tracts which blanketed all Germany and beyond. Thomas Lindsay, one of Luther's biographers give some interesting facts, which he collected by Dr. Burkhardt, archivist at Weimar, Germany. He says, quote, Burkhardt tells us that the number of books which were issued from the printing press in German language within Germany from 1480 to 1490 did not exceed 40 a year. That the numbers issued during the first 10 years of the 16th century, that is from 1500 to 1510, were not greater. And then he gives exact numbers for individual years. In the year 1513, the number of books in German language issued from German presses was 35. In 1514, it was 47. In 1515, 46. In 1516, 55, and in 1517, 37. And keep in mind, 1517 is when Luther nailed the 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. He goes on to say, then Luther's printed appeals to the German people began to appear in the shape of sermons, addresses, short tracts, etc. And the German publications of the year 1518 were 71, no less than 20 of which were from Luther's pen. In 1519, the total number of German published works was 111, of which 50 were Luther's. In 1520, the number of printed German books rose to 208, of which 133 were Luther's. While in 1523, the whole number of German books had risen to 498, of which no less than 183 were from Luther's pen, end quote. Luther was writing half of everything being printed in Germany. His sermons, his tracts, his treaties, taking the Bible and addressing it to certain doctrines and issues in society were impacting all of Germany and beyond. Rome was filling the shockwaves of Luther's preaching of the word of God. Now for a time... You need to realize that Luther was still in this transition stage. At first, he began to have questions as he studied the Bible. And the more he studied the Bible, the more he began to have problems with doctrines in the church. He started off believing the doctrines of the church and the Bible, but then began to realize that the Bible was self-sufficient. Also keep in mind that at the beginning, Luther was called to Wittenberg to be a professor of theology, not a preacher. He went to Wittenberg because they needed a a professor of theology. So he showed up. The problem is, is the pastor pastor in the town there became ill and they needed somebody to fill in. So Luther said, "Okay." When he started to preach, people realized he had incredible preaching gifts. And so he kind of slid in to the role of pastor and never left and was now pastor and professor in Wittenberg. Luther's biographer describes his preaching with these words. Quote, in the convent chapel, he had preached to persons who could perhaps appreciate learned dirt discourses. But he had now to do with the common rude man, with raw Saxons, as he said. And he knew that the first merit in a sermon is that it can be understood. The people had no Bibles, but most of them knew the Lord's Prayer the Ten Com- and the Ten Commandments. The common people heard him gladly. He spoke in plain, nervous German. He gathered collections of German proverbs and many country sayings and used them as illustrations. He noticed that our Lord used the homeliest illustrations, talking of tilling in the ground of mustard seed, of sparrows and sheep and fish. And he went and did likewise. It is impossible to misunderstand Luther's sermons. Above all, he had a way of making the Bible living, of showing that it was full of histories of men and women who had lived and talked and eaten and slept and married and given in marriage, end quote. So Luther wasn't some sort of heady theologian when he came out of the university and he stood before the common man. He took these complex doctrines that he was understanding from his study of the scriptures and the original languages, and he began to teach them to peasants in simple, understandable language. And as Luther studied and preached, through books of the Bible, his theology became more and more biblical. He saw more errors in the Roman Catholic Church and practice. And he passed down the discoveries that he was making to the people. Showing them from the word of God what the Bible said. And the Reformation was underway. It's interesting to read secular historians as they try to figure out what caused the Reformation. There must have been some sort of uh, economics. We're we're seeing economically that you know there were certain factors and there were certain rulers and discontent among the nobles and and there was the peasant revolt and and there was this and there was that and they're always trying to find out some reason why the reformation happened well it happened because the word of god was unleashed that's what happened that's what caused the reformation you see the same thing happening in the life of john calvin as luther is doing his thing in germany john calvin comes to Christ in 1534 in France. Of course, France then is strongly Roman Catholic, and he realizes he cannot be a Protestant and live in France without risking his life. And so he goes on a travel, and he's passing through Geneva, Switzerland. And there in Geneva, he decides to stay one night before moving on. But there was a man in the town by the name of William Farrell, and William Farrell himself was a very aggressive and passionate reformer. He had heard of Calvin, had heard how godly Calvin was, and learned how brilliant Calvin was. So he sought him out, found him, and he begged Calvin to stay in Geneva and preach the word. Calvin said, respectively, uh, no. Because he didn't want to be a preacher. He wanted to be a theologian. He just wanted to find a place where he could study the Bible and read and just kind of indulge himself in in." in the scriptures well when William Farrell heard him say no he then called down an imprecation upon him he told him the wrath of God would be upon him that the wrath of God would chase him to hell if he didn't preach the word in Geneva and Calvin was so scared he said okay (laughs) okay And so Calvin, like Luther, began to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible in plain, understandable language, and people started getting saved. Their lives were being changed. Those people went out into society, and they changed society. Geneva was being transformed, and just as problems arose in Germany because of this, so it happened in Geneva. And pretty soon, there were the Roman Catholics who didn't like the change, and there were the Protestants who did, and... It, the political infighting, kind of the religious political infighting, became so intense that there was a Sunday where Calvin refused to administer communion to his people. He said, your hearts aren't right within you. You're grumbling. You're complaining. You're angry. You're bitter. You're fighting with one, one another. And, and we're in no mood here to be giving communion. Well, they got so mad at him that they exiled him from Geneva, and he was glad to go. He left. And then he went to Strasbourg where he had a very fruitful and pleasant ministry with Martin Bucer, and was just having a great time there until Protestantism finally and the consequences of his teaching and others in Geneva began to have its inroads and Protestantism finally won the day. And William Farrell called him up and said, come back to Geneva. Of course, he didn't want to go. He referred to his time in Geneva as a cross and torture chamber. (laughs) Yet Calvin, after praying, felt it was God's will that he should return to Geneva. Upon returning to Geneva, Calvin began to preach in the very next verse where he had left off, in the very book and chapter where he had left off years previously. It was like he was never gone. It was just the next verse of scripture and he kept preaching and preaching. And if you know, he basically preached almost through every book of the Bible. I think, you know, there's 20 some volumes of his sermons, expositions through the word of God. It was as if he had never left off. He kept on preaching and he transformed all Geneva. And what's interesting, and a lot of people don't realize this Because, you know, in many people's minds, if you're a Calvinist, if you believe in the sovereignty of God or predestination, then you don't believe in evangelism. That is so antithetical to the truth. The greatest evangelist of all times believed what Calvin believed. And Calvin himself was a rabid evangelist and a trainer of missionaries. He trained hundreds of of preachers to go out and preach through the word of God. One of them being John Knox, who if you know, John Knox was the great Scottish reformer who after sitting under the teaching of Calvin went back to Scotland and shook all Scotland for the cause of Christ. And so as the truth was being preached in Germany and Switzerland and Scotland and England, the Bible became known And it became obvious that things like indulgences and purgatory and the treasury of merit were false. They were not even in the Bible. They contradicted other other doctrines. Of course, this made the Pope furious. The truth of the word of God was cutting into his cash cow, especially in Germany, where Luther's writings just almost just put an end to anything leaving the country to go to Rome. And so in order to stop Luther, uh, a critical council was held, the Diet of Worms. We have mentioned it earlier. A diet is a council. They got together in the City of Worms, and it was there that Luther was to be tried, exposed as a heretic, condemned, and summarily burned at the stake. And that way they would have got rid of that pestilence in Germany. Well, by this time, Luther had made full transition from believing in the Bible and the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church to believing the Bible only as a rule of faith and practice. During the Diet of Worms, Luther was asked to recant his heretical teachings. He knew that if he refused, he would be burned at the stake. So there he was, standing before Charles V, the emperor of the entire realm of Spain and France and Germany and all the, almost all Europe, in front of cardinals and monks and bishops. And they're asking him, Are you going to recant your works that you have written or not? In other words, are you going to let everybody know that everything you've taught from the Bible is false or not? Luther asked, for one more night to pray and come back and answer. The next day he came back and they pressed him. They just wanted a short, simple answer. Then Luther replied, quote, I believe not the Pope. Neither his general counsels that have erred many times and have been contrary to themselves. My conscience is so bound and held captive by the scriptures and the word of God that it will not and may not revoke any manner of thing. It would be ungodly and unlawful for me to go against my own conscience. Hereupon I stand and rest. I don't have anything else to say. God have mercy upon me End quote. They then pressed Luther for a shorter and simpler answer still. Will you or will you not recant what you have written? And Luther said, my conscience is bound by the word of God. Here I stand, so help me God. In saying that, Luther was declaring that he believed implicitly in the doctrine of sola scriptura, that doctrine, faith, practices were all to come from the word of God and the word of God alone, that the Bible was over the church and the church was not over the Bible. Well, this brings us to our text in Deuteronomy chapter 8, a text we're going to look at, which is going to teach us Some important things about this doctrine of sola scriptura. I was tempted to preach from Isaiah 40, verse 8, which we read earlier. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. But I thought this would be a good text because this one here is very convicting because it not only tells us that the scriptures are sufficient, but it really works at our heart to help us understand why. Now, just to give you a bit of context, Deuteronomy was written by Moses when Israel was camped across the Jordan River from Jericho. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Of course, they didn't believe God. They didn't believe the promises of God, and so they had to go on a death march until that entire generation had died off. So it's some 40 years later. They're now getting ready to enter the land. Moses, because in a fit of anger, struck the rock, exasperated by the people, and he did not trust God. God said, you can't go into the land. You're going to die. I'll let you look at it, but you can't enter in. So he knows he's going to die. He knows the people are going to enter in the land and take possession of it. So he writes the book of Deuteronomy, which means second law, not because it is a second law um, like new information. It is the same information given in Exodus and Leviticus and the first 10 chapters of Numbers, but it's a. That law applied practically or illustrated in certain situations, common things that they're going to encounter in the, in the promised land. So it's kind of a practical guide for how to apply the law of God to your life in the promised land as a Jew under the old covenant. And so in chapters one through four, Moses gives a quick historical survey. In chapter five, he restates the Ten Commandments. And then in chapter six through ten, six through nine, he gives this spiritual pep talk. If you read, he tells them not to forget and not not to, to forsake the Lord and to remember God's commandments and to stick to the covenant. And he keeps exhorting them over and over again before he begins to apply the law to various situations. And so our text comes in the middle of this spiritual pep talk. I'm going to read verses one through six of Deuteronomy chapter eight. And then we're going to focus on verse three. Moses writes all the commandments that I am commanding you today. You shall be careful to do that. You may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all The way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you testing you to know it was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. Thus you were to yet thus you are um, to know uh, in your heart that the Lord was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son, therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. What I want to do this morning is focus your attention on verse three. And three important truths about sola scriptura, which you must learn and live by so that you are not led into false doctrines and unbiblical practices. The first is, uh, an example for you to remember. Look at verse three, where Moses speaks to Israel and says, and he humbled you and let you become hungry. And let's stop there. What's Moses talking about? He's talking about how God led them from Egypt had them camp at Mount Sinai and said, stay here. And then God waited. What did he wait for? So that they would become hungry. But you say, well, why would God do that? Why after bringing them out of Egypt and doing all the plagues and the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night after the Red Sea, why would he just kind of let them become hungry? Well, if you look back at verse 2, it tells us, starting in the middle of the verse, Moses says that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. This is why God let Israel become hungry. First, he wanted to humble them. Humility is a difficult lesson to learn, isn't it? I mean, humility is one of those things that are just, you know, right when you finally think, you know, I'm pretty humble, you're probably prouder than ever. And because we're we're just naturally proud, God has to use painful trials and circumstances to break our will and to make us humble ourselves so that we trust in him. Humility is one of those lessons that we just need to always be learning a little bit more of because we like attention, we like power, we like fame, we like to be the best, we like to be number one, we like to have things our own way, we like to trust in ourselves and our own strength, our own ingenuity, our own resources. We don't want to submit. It's just common because we're sinners. Yet Jesus said in Matthew 18:4 whoever then humbles himself as this child he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then be the humblest. That is just so antithetical to the world. Jesus said in Matthew 23:12 to the religious leaders whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. In James chapter 4, verse 10, James says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you in due time. You have to choose to humble yourselves, to not grasp for power, not grasp for position, not trust in yourself. Not rely on your own strength. To let God, to let someone else, let other people get the attention, other people get the position, other people get the fame. And let God promote you, but you don't promote yourself. Peter, knowing that pride is especially great in young men, says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Then he says, and all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. There is a. Oh, years worth of sermons here. But just a couple things in that Peter verse, which is so good. The constant exhortation to humble yourself, which means you have to choose to do it. You humble yourself. Now, God will humble you if you don't humble yourself. The other thing... Is the verse seven where he says, casting all your anxiety on him. Think about that. The root at the core, at the heart of anxiety is a refusal to believe that God is sovereign, a refusal to believe God is in control, a refusal to trust him in his promises. It's pride. And then the fruit of pride a lot of times is anxiety, fear, fretting and worry because you don't believe God is in control. You don't believe he's going to take care of you. You don't believe his word is true. Otherwise, you wouldn't be anxious. And so he says, casting all your anxiety on him after he says to humble yourself three times. Because who cares for you? God cares for you. Over and over again, the word of God tells us to humble ourselves. Humility seeks to give glory for all things. Good seeks to rely on God for all things and takes responsibility for all things. Bad. You know, Israel was rejoicing when they left, the prom, they, they left uh, Egypt to go to the promised land. They thought, you know, it was great. They saw all of those plagues come upon the people of Egypt who were putting them to slave labor and the Egyptians had to suffer and they didn't. They got to escape from the death of the firstborn. And by the time that last plague came and the death of the firstborn died, the Israelites were so loathsome in the sight of the Egyptians. The Egyptians just got out all their money and all their jewels and all their gold and said, we're paying you leave. And that's why the scriptures say they plundered the Egyptians. It was, it was as if God made the Egyptians pay Israel for all of their slave labor. And so they left with God on their side, loaded with cash out into the wilderness. Well, what is the first thing God did? He led him to a dead end. And said, yeah, camp everybody right next to the Red Sea in this little boxed canyon. And then what happens? Pharaoh changes his mind, goes, what did I just do? I just fired my workforce. So he sends his army and what happens? The people have been put into an impossible situation that they cannot deliver themselves from. And there's no hope of escape. And then what does God do? He delivers them. Unlike any time ever before, he parted the sea and they crossed on the other side in dry land. And then when Pharaoh's army came and tried to do the same, they were all destroyed. Delivered by something they never even imagined. Then God led them to Mount Sinai. And they must have been, man, we got rid of the Egyptians. And you see the army wiped out. And man, look at all the cash I got. You know, my master gave me all this before I left. Well, I got this. Well, look what I got. And they're all excited about their freedom. And you know what happens. As soon as you get a whole bunch of people and they're free, other people assert themselves. You know, I think I need to be mayor. Now, I think I need to lead this, this, this group here. Moses is a good guy, but I can be in charge. And you know there's all these petty things going along. You got two million people. You know it's happening. People are just kind of self-appoint themselves. And God's trying to teach them a lesson. He's God and they're not. He's in control and they're not. They need to trust him and trust his promises, not themselves. And so what does he do? He takes them out and says, here, camp here at Mount Sinai. And then he just, God just chills out for a while. And pretty soon they start getting a little hungry. You know, two million people gobble up all the snacks quick. (laughs) And all of a sudden it begins to dawn on people as their stomachs begin to growl, as they see grandma and grandpa with no food and their children with no food and them with no food. What am I doing out here in the middle of the desert? I can't survive out here. There's not enough food for 2 million people. There's not even enough food out here for two. We're going to die. We're going to die. And so what do they do? Well, you know, some of those assertive people go, okay, we need to make a plan here. Let's get a committee together. What are we going to do? We cannot survive out here. It's impossible. There's no way we're going to live. We're all going to die. We're We got to go back to Egypt. We've got to go back to Egypt. You know, we could volunteer to be slaves again. At least we had melons and leeks to eat. Does that sound familiar to you? Oh, is that so familiar? Is that exactly, you know, I, I find it interesting. Sometimes people, you know, read Exodus. They go, man, what's wrong with those people? What's wrong with us? Now, how many times have you had a trial come upon you, a financial burden, a sickness, you need a job, you want to get married, you need an education, whatever it is, something comes into your life, and the first person you turn to is who? You. Your visa, your wisdom, your bank account, your stocks. I gotta figure out how to deliver myself. I need to become my own Messiah. Where is God in all of this? Where is the God who created the heavens and the earth? Where is he in the midst of your trials? Has he died? Has he ceased to be powerful? Has his promises ever failed? Has he left you and forsaken you? Not in your life. You have left God. That's what's happened. You have become proud. You forgot the Lord. You're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your resources. You're trusting in created things. And God doesn't like this. And if you don't humble yourself. God will humble you. I I do this very same thing myself. I mean, I have things to do. I'm busy. You know, I'm a pastor. And you think I have like, you know, spiritual goosebumps all over me. I don't. You know, I get to the office, have piles of things to do. I try and get them done every day and I never finish. I just postpone until next week. What I can't get done the week before and it never ends. And sometimes you know, it's like, okay, alright, I gotta get to get going here, and I gotta start studying, and say, I could do this, and I think if I worked hard, I could finish this, and I can do that, and I can do this, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, I probably should bring God in here somewhere. <laughs> I probably should pray. I should probably do what I tell everybody else to do. <laughs> and you know what? I realize. I haven't thought of the Lord. I haven't prayed yet. I haven't reminded myself of his promises. I'm not trusting in the Lord. I'm flushing it out. And then, you know, Jeremiah 17 comes to mind. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. He will be living like a bush in the desert in a stony wasteland in a land of salt without inhabitant. And then when I look in the mirror, that's what I see. Dying bush and desert. God brings trials into our lives to humble us and to test us. Why? So he can see what's in our heart. Are we going to trust him and obey his commandments or not? Look again at verse three. He humbled you and let you become hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Now stop there. This is just so good. Don't miss this here. He takes two million people out. That is a lot of people. Takes them out, has them camp by this mountain in the middle of nowhere. There's just rocks and dirt and scorpions. And, you know, not very many people eat scorpions, although they do in China. But not very many people do. And so what do you do when you've got two million hungry people and it's impossible to feed them? Well, first... They start hoarding their food and first they start being selfish and then they try to figure out their own deliverance. And then you ration as much as you can. You try and make it stretch out as much as you can. And then when you finally run out of all of your resources, when you're at the end of your rope, you finally turn to God, which you should have turned to at the beginning. And since they weren't turning to to him, he made them turn to him. He made them turn to him. He made them. Then they finally said, God, we don't have anything to eat. Okay. I'll rain down bread out of heaven for 40 years. And then God did the impossible. Why? Because God had promised He would be their God. They would be His people, that He would take care of them. And God cannot break His word. He can't break His promise. He's the God who cannot lie. He can never do it. And so in order to hold his word, in order to maintain his character, he rained bread out of heaven for 40 years to feed 2 million plus people. That's radical. And so the lesson to learn here, I think, is pretty clear. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your resources. Don't be anxious. Don't be fret. God will not break his word. He cannot break his word. He's willing to feed 2 million people for 40 years. So he doesn't break his word. Surely he can deal with you in your trial. And so we must remember this when trial comes, we must stop and say, okay, who's God and who's not who's in control and who's not who has the resources and who doesn't have the resources. Who is the God of the impossible? And we need to remember not to trust in ourselves, but cling to God and his promises. Secondly, what you should not live by. Look at verse three again. He humbled you and let you become hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. This is a very hard lesson to learn. In the world, you know, cash is king and food is king and clothing is king. But God is not king. Yet, where do we get our wealth from? God is the one who gives us the power to make wealth. Where do we get our clothing from? God is the one who gives us that. Where does food come? God. The scriptures tell us over and over we are to trust in the Lord because all of those good things all come from his hand. Yes, he uses different means to bring them to us, but they all come from him. I mean, you could watch primetime TV, you could watch the news, you could read, you know, the CNN website. You could, you know, read the major news magazines for a month, for a year. And just try and find one headline that says, trust God and his word and everything will be fine. (laughs) Will you ever see that? It is not there. It will never be there because Satan is the God of this world and he doesn't want you trusting in God or his word. This is why we must trust God in his word. This is why we must labor to read and study and meditate and memorize the word of God. It's why we all need to be involved in a small group, in a Bible study, in a Sunday school class, and come here faithfully and listen to good sermons on the Internet and read good books that are saturated in the scriptures. Why? So God can speak to us. I have people come to me, you know, I just don't know what God wants me to do. Well, have you read your Bible? Well, no. Well, He says quite a bit in here. And if you read this book, you might discover that He actually addresses your situation and gives you the very wisdom you need to deal with it. If you want God to speak, open the Bible. He speaks. He speaks. Don't look for some experience or sense something or have a vision inflated without cause by your fleshly mind. Go to the book. He tells you right there. It's objective. It's written down. Read the Bible. You have to do this. That's how God speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. He wants to speak to us. We need to let him speak to us. We need to put ourselves in those positions where he can. You know, Jesus quoted the very text we're looking at when he was tempted in the wilderness. In Matthew 4, 4 and Luke 4, 4, remember what happened? Satan comes to Jesus. And where was Jesus? Well, Jesus is in the wilderness. How did he get there? The Spirit led him out there. Just just like God led Israel out into the wilderness, so the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness. And Jesus... Had fasted. It was the father's will that he fast for 40 days. So God let Jesus become really hungry. And he let Israel become hungry. Not 40 days hungry, but hungry. And then the temptation came. The Satan says, Jesus, why don't you just take this rock and turn it into a loaf of bread and eat if you are the son of God. Well, he was the son of God. He had infinite resources as the son of God. And so the parallels here are amazing because both Israel and Jesus were in the wilderness. Both of them knew God promised to take care of them. Both were allowed to become hungry. Both had the opportunity to trust in God's word. Israel did not do it and instead grumbled and complained. And Jesus did. You know, Jesus was the son of God. I mean, he spoke the universe into existence. He can make a loaf of bread with butter on it. <laughs> Jesus is the example here. Jesus humbled himself. He submitted to the trial. He said, God promised to take care of me. I'm not going to exert My will, contrary to his will, I am going to submit until he feeds me. So the question is, are you going to act like Israel or are you going to act like Christ? Are you going to trust in yourself and your resources and grumble and complain? Or are you going to remember that God is perfectly faithful, that he never breaks his word? Verse 3 says, God wants you to understand that man does not live by bread alone. And what God is teaching us through Moses is that we are not to trust in things that God created, but in the sovereign God who created them. So get ready. Trials will come upon you. I mean, if you're not going through one now, just get ready. You know, whenever things are going good, I know that it's just, you know, kind of the lull in between the next wave that hits. He will bring trials into your life to humble you, to test you, to see whether or not, You're going to trust him to see what's really in your heart. What is your first response going to be? I've got to go to God, pray, meditate, remember the scriptures and have faith in them. Or am I going to look to my own resources? Thirdly, what you must live by. Look towards the end of verse three. But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Notice the first word, but which tells us a contrast is being made between what should and shouldn't be trusted in. Don't trust in your own physical strength, your intelligence, bread, money, jobs, government, the next president. But instead, trust in everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And what does proceed out of the mouth of the Lord? The word of God. The Bible. You remember what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17? He says, all scripture. Is inspired by God. God breathed, is what it literally reads. And profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man, the woman of God, may be adequate equipped for how many good works? Oh, every good work. Oh, you want to be able to equip for any kind of good work? The Word of God. And the Word of God alone. Do you remember what Peter says in Second Peter? Chapter one, verses three and four. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That pretty much covers it. But where does that stuff come from? Through the true knowledge of him. Who calls us by his own glory and excellence for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through this book. Then he talks about the true knowledge that God will give us as we study the word. And then towards the end of this section in verses 19 through 21, after Peter says, don't trust in your experiences, he says, because we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You want to know what this is? This is God speaking to you. You want to hear from God? You read the book, you hear the book, you talk about the book with people who know the book. And then God speaks to you. And this is why Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Booser and Peter Martyr and John Knox and the rest were instrumental in the Reformation because they unleashed the book. And, you know, the secular historians aren't going to tell you, well, obviously the Bible is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And when they read it, it did its work. You'll never read that. And a secular, from a, hyster- a secular historian, even some who profess to be Christians who didn't even say that. But think with me. Isn't it true of what the Bible says? I mean, think about it. In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke 4, when Jesus is tempted, what in every case does he turn to when he's tempted? The scriptures. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 18, what does Jesus say will never pass away? The scriptures. In Matthew 26, verse 54, and Luke 24, 44, what did Jesus say would have every detail accomplished? The Scriptures. When Jesus argued and debated with the Pharisees and scribes and lawyers, what did He always refer to? The Scriptures. In Luke 24, 27 and 44 and 46, what did Jesus refer to when speaking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus? The Scriptures. In John chapter five, verses forty-five and forty-seven, what did Jesus say would judge all men in the final day? The Scriptures. In John ten thirty-five, what did Jesus say could not be broken? The Scriptures. What did did Paul, when he was in Ephesus, and what did he remind the Ephesians elders of in Acts twenty verse twenty and and verses twenty to thirty-two? That he taught them night and day, both publicly and from house to house, for a period of three years. The Scriptures. In Acts seventeen eleven, what did Paul said made the Bereans more noble than those in Thessalonica? Because they searched the scriptures. In first Corinthians fifteen, chapters one or verses one through four, when Paul lays out that little condensed version of the gospel, what does he say is it based on? The scriptures. In Ephesians six, what is the believer's only offensive weapon? The scriptures, the word of God. In Colossians 3.16, what are we to allow to dwell in us richly? The scriptures. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 6 and 13, what does Paul tell Timothy to teach, to give attention to, to be absorbed in, to take pains with night and day? The scriptures. The preaching and teaching of the word of God. He tells Titus the same thing in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, 2, 1 and 2.15. And what in Jude 3? Does Jude say we are to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, which is found where? In the scriptures. You wonder why the reformers came to believe in sola scriptura? Because that's what the Bible teaches. You know what? If you read biographies of Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox, you're going to fight. These guys were sinners. They made stupid mistakes. They made, they did evil things. They were not perfect. They were sinners. They wrote things that were wrong. They said things that were wrong. They had flawed theology. But I'm telling you, they did one thing right. And that one thing is they believed in sola scriptura. They preached through the scriptures. They preached through the word of God. And it changed all of world history. The world has never been the same and will never be the same. And Luther eventually died along with the rest of the reformers. But Luther left behind a huge gift for the German people. And that was the word of God in the common language. When he was hiding in Wartburg Castle. And almost, it's it's unprecedented. It borders on the miraculous. He translated the entire New Testament from Greek into German in 10 weeks. 1,500 verses a day. Uh, That, that, I mean, even if you knew it Greek perfectly, it would still be a nightmare to do that. And he did a good job. And he gave that Bible to the German people and they could read it for themselves and there was no turning back. You can't stop the work of God in the world when the Bible is unleashed. You want to change society? You want to... See people change. You want to see morality come about? Then unleash the word. Talk about the word. Live the word. That's what changes people. And people change society. Not government. Not laws. Not politics. The word of God unleashed by the people of God. Is what has always transformed societies from evil to good. The great power to change the world is contained in this book. And so as you leave here today, I hope that each of you realizes you can have your own little reformation in your neighborhood, at your workplace, among friends. You just need to live this truth and speak this truth. And you know what? You're going to receive opposition just like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox did from those who don't like it. But you know what else you're going to do? Cause reformation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this text. What a great text to just be reminded that we are not to be living on bread alone, but everything that proceeds out of your mouth, which comes from your holy word. Father, if there is somebody here who doesn't know you, somebody here who has never gave their life to Jesus Christ, who has never repented of their sins and trust completely in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone alone, Receiving the truth of the gospel alone from your word alone. Father, may that happen this morning. May they realize that Jesus died for them and shed his blood on their behalf. That through faith and faith alone, we can receive the free gift of eternal life. That you are willing to forgive us and change us and transform us into new creatures in Christ. And for the rest of us, may we leave here committed to become our own little reformers in whatever sphere of influence you have given us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.